Andre Jones, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's a joy. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on your retirement. You had, <laughs> oh, yeah. you, had a, well, you had a big day today, right? You had a little surprise? I did have a, a very large and very meaningful surprise. Um, the middle school assembly today was sort of about where is this guy going and, and why is he leaving us and you know, a celebration for sure. And my thanks to the school and the middle school community where I've spent all, all of the last 15 years actually never taught in another division, never had another job at Gilman, frankly never had an interest in doing anything but middle school work. So it's been a long run, a wonderful time. Um, I might cry today <laughs> on your podcast. That's all right. About it, but we've had some tears on here. Yeah, it's but all I'm, good. I'm going to try not to do that and try to explain why this place is so special in my heart, and to offer thanks to everyone who's helped me and I've needed some help. And Gilman's a, a great place to get it. It is in my heart forever. I don't. I don't think that those words are in our song or anthem, right? <laughs> Yeah, in our hearts it'll always be, right, I got it, yep, that's a good thing. How'd you get to Gilman? How was, like, what was the process of you coming here in the first uh, place? Because I know you taught for a while at another school. So, uh, there are two versions of this story. The, the real one is the one I'm going to tell you. Um, and it's a, little, it's a little strange, so hang on to your hats. I was teaching in the Anne Arundel Public Schools. I spent 33 years there. And around 2003 or four, the coconut fell on my head and I was named the County Teacher of the Year. So this is actually a big deal, sort of. Um, you know, we had 6,000 teachers and a whole bunch of kids, a big old county school system. And so part of my being named to this position was um, I had to go out and recruit teachers. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell things here that are true, <laughs> but maybe... <laughs> Maybe not everybody should know, but the world will know now if they're listening. So uh, I had to recruit teachers. And I would drive by Gilman on my way to Severna Park twice a day, and I had no idea. It just looked like some beautiful pile of bricks on the corner. And, man, that must be a cool place. But, you know, I, I, don't, you know, I just never thought about Gilman. I didn't step foot on campus, even though I live a mile plus from campus. Um, so... I got up on Saturday morning after working in Anne Arundel and realized that Gilman was having some sort of teacher job fair thing. And I thought, wow, they're not going to hire all those people. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put a business card in my pocket, put a suit on, and I will go over there and I'll use that place to recruit some teachers for Anne Arundel County. So I was going <laughs> to backdoor the situation, right? So I got here and... They had a sort of a setup with donuts in the auditorium. And Mr. Foreman, who I didn't have any idea who he was, got up and spoke about the importance of the job fair and this and that. And he dismissed us to rooms in the middle school. And the presenter was some guy named Tim Holly. Now, I couldn't tell you Tim Holly from the man in the moon. But the way he spoke about working at Gilman, I'm like, this guy just loves his job. This is wow, is this really possible? I mean, so, but I wasn't here for that purpose. And then we wandered down to the arena area, and they had little tables set up with the signs for each of the schools. And I, I got to the Gilman booth or table, and there was one person there, kind of this guy with 
gray hair. He was kind of staring off into space. And um, I looked at him. He looked at me and said, hello. I said, hello, how are you? He said, are you looking for a job? I said, no, I'm not. He's like, uh, you're not looking for a job? What are you doing here? I said, uh, I can't tell you. But I know you. And he, how do you know me? I said, well, I know one of your teachers, Neil Gaby, is my next-door neighbor, and you must be Ron Culbertson. So that was my first ever meeting with Ron Culbertson. And he pushed me and said, why are you at a job fair if you're not looking for a job? I said, well, I'm just not. I'm here for another purpose. I'm not going to disclose <laughs> that to you at the moment. And then he said something unusual. He said, I know you because Gaby has talked about you. Mr. Gaby has spoken about you. You teach geography down in Anne Arundel or something, right? Yes. And then he said, suppose I told you my geography teacher of 30 years plus, Mr. Clapp, is retiring. Would you be interested in a job then? And I said, no. <laughs> and I left. And Mr. Gaby came knocking on my door Monday after he got out of school and wrote, read me the riot act and said, you can't, pop, you can't do that. You can't go on Gilman's campus to a job fair and then tell everybody there you don't want a job and not explain what you were really doing there. It's not going to fly. <laughs> and he wants to talk to you. Okay, you got to apologize. I said, okay, I'll apologize. So I apologized, Mr. Culbertson. He invited me to come to the middle school just for a visit, not a, in nothing like that. And when I got there, I, thought, I felt like I was at home. I, I can't explain it. People will talk about how the middle school is different or it's you know an unusual division, which it certainly is. But what it is is home for boys and faculty. It is home. It's like it's like the best of your family, right? And we not, it was not perfect, but Mr. Culbertson. Mr. Abrams, Ms. Abruso, the people who were at the beginning, uh, Gordon Culbertson, at the beginning of the foundation of the middle school had family in mind when they designed it and set it up. And it, it was, it's been my joy, my heartfelt joy to be a part of it. So that's a true story of how I got to Gilman from Anne Arundel County. And I didn't look back. Um, it, it's been different, certainly. My public and independent school teaching experience is a much different thing, but kids are the same, I can tell you that, everywhere, and they have the same needs. And Gilman boys are unbelievably talented and bright and helpful and honorable and decent. And, and for that, I thank them. They shared that with me and gave me the energy I needed to get through on some pretty tough days. So. That's how I got to Gilman from Anne Arundel. That's the whole and true story. I love that story. Um, <laughs> how, what did they have you teaching when you first came in? What did they, uh, where did they place you as the first-year teacher at Gilman? Yeah, I was a 30, so I taught 33 years. So I was a 34-year first-year teacher at Gilman, and I was in something called Nuts with Ron Culbertson. You'd have to understand what Nuts is, which new and untried teachers. <laughs> so you had to have a Nuts meeting with him, and he would grill you on pedagogy and, and remind you about saying please and thank you always and remind you to be respectful. He was, he was quite a mentor to me. Um, so I came with a purpose of teaching geography, and Mr. Clapp stayed a year after I got here and kind of helped guide me. God rest him. But um, my first assignment was geography, and then I taught talk 
which is unusual again. That's not something I think you see at any other middle school. Um, what I, is talk in the middle school? Yeah, I don't know what fr- freshman fifth is up, you know, in the upper school very much, but talk is interesting. So the design of the middle school is for the faculty to get to know boys in every way possible. So talk is sort of a seminar. It's really small. Usually you have five or six. Well, five would be low, but no more than seven or eight boys together. And in the sixth grade, it starts off talking about friendships and, you know, kind of adolescent development. Seventh and eighth grade gets a little heavier. The eighth grade course I taught for a while is ethics, actually, and what is the right thing to do. And it's it's very challenging. Uh, it's a non-graded course, but it's a way for faculty to get to know boys. Um, the designers of the middle school were brilliant I think we call them the kind of like the founding fathers and moms of the middle school um, knew that if you gave faculty a chance to talk to boys just have a conversation in sort of a controlled environment you'd get to know them better and then as always happens in middle school something's going to go wrong Middle school boys, it could be anything. It could be falling out of their desk. You know, it could be something fell out of a tree and hit them in the head. It could be they lost a shoe. You know, I mean, whatever you can come up with, they've done it. So, so the, it sounds I, a lot like advisory in, in the upper school, similar, sure. similar concept. What, what do you think? Um, I'm interested in, like, the qualities you feel like you had that made you want to teach middle school at, at Anne Arundel County and then at Gilman? Like, why were you attracted to the middle school age? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I started out thinking I was going to be a, like, high school principal, right, back when I was in college. Um, and I was on my way to doing that in Anne Arundel, right? I did the administrator's training track, although I was a classroom teacher. You had to start there. And then someone... I, th- I think I can say his name, Jim McGowan, who was my principal at Marley Middle School, which was then Marley Junior High, said, you know, why are you doing this? I said, well, you know, it just seems like a challenge. He goes, it's, it's more than a challenge. It's a life eater. Do you really want to do this? I'm like, I'd like to try it. He said, well, you could do that, but I'm going to tell you now, the best job that anybody can have in education or maybe in the universe is teacher. He said, if you can learn to be a good teacher, then the rest of this stuff is just nonsense. Nothing ever happens in my office. It's going to change the life of a child very much, but you can do that every day if you're a teacher. So I didn't have a job necessarily graduating from college. Shout out to little, little East Stroudsburg University in the Poconos. <laughs> teacher college, something like Towson, but on a smaller scale. <laughs> and so I got recruited um, to go to the Anne Arundel public school system. And I didn't know anything about Anne Arundel County, even though I I was born in Baltimore and grew up there the first five or six years, Anne Arundel was some other place. I didn't know about it. So I took the job because I was offered the job. I was teaching ninth grade consumer economics and civics. So I taught ninth graders. That was in what was called junior high school. So it was seventh, eighth, and ninth. No sixth graders. They were still in lower school or what we would call in the public elementary school. And then 10th grade was where high school started, and those kids went to Glen Burnie High School, generally speaking. So that was how I started. 
And then six or seven years in, I got furloughed. I got excessed, as they would say. So the school population fell, and they sent me to Severna Park, which um, different than Marley, different sort of uh, social atmosphere, um, a high-quality public school, beautifully um, arranged, wonderful. And so I went over there teaching um, seventh-grade geography. So I think... Yeah, so my first year at Severna Park would have been about eighty, about nineteen eighty-two, and that's when I started teaching geography to seventh graders. And it's never changed. I haven't taught anything seriously other than geography since nineteen eighty-two. Um, and because Mr. Clapp was leaving, I think the school thought that I had enough knowledge in curriculum development to be able to put a program together. And it shifted from sort of U.S. geography to Eastern Hemisphere geography, more of a world focus. So I think I'm prou- actually proud of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, think it's, I think it's a good thing for the boys. I think it's a good thing for the school. So it'll probably continue that way, I hope. So in those, those years prior to coming to Gilman, you obviously figured something out that made you a success as a, as a teacher of you know, geography in the middle school. What, what do you think that was that you found out or learned about the job of a teacher in those years? Well, I know what it is. And I know where it came from. So the, my, my sort of attraction to middle school is the kids are innocent enough that you can still have some impact over them. I mean, it, no offense to upper school boys, but they have big lives and athletic things and, you know, all kinds of obligations and they can be a little jaded or maybe a little cynical even, you know, if somebody's trying to guide them. I think less so here at Gilman. Boys seem to respect the faculty. Lower school kids, to me, no. oh boy, it's kind of like herding cats, which, I, <laughs> which is not a thing I could do. And I realized that cat herding would not be my thing. But middle school boys have enough good sense to know what should happen when. They're all kinds of curious. That, that spark of curiosity lives in them. They cannot stop it, right? They're active, which I think is, an, is really intriguing. And they're, they're, they love one another, particularly at Gilman. The boys here care deeply for each other. And I've seen this year in the pandemic, that's been a very meaningful thing. Having them at school and connected is, is amazing. And the administration of the school should be lauded for what they've done. It, it's been remarkable. So it came, actually a spark came from a guy, Walter Melnikoff, who was my seventh grade geography teacher. Uh, God rest Walter. Um, the most amazing man, I think, in the classroom I've ever been around. His thing was, if it's not fun, it's not happening. Right? If you can't find a way to have fun with it, kids are not going to learn it. Um, I also think it has to be personalized to some extent. Otherwise, I would become a lecturer or presenter. And um, I really wanted to be something more than that, and that, and that is teacher. And that's, that is a complicated, difficult, life-learning type of thing to be. So it was Mr. Melnikoff. He would every day in Pocono Mountain High School at the end of the day, it was a little kind of rural community, 
and he thought we weren't worldly enough. He lived in New York. So every day at the end of school, he would have a stack of New York Times newspapers and he'd be passing them out on the way to the bus. And if you didn't have money for one, he'd give you one and tell, he'd say, you owe me, you owe me 10 cents, but read about the world there, son. And he would take us on field trips. He, he was expressive about his love for the world and his interest in our exploring it. And this lived with me. I didn't know it. I mean, I'm just now these last few years thinking, well, you know, why did I, how did I, how did I end up doing this? And the more I thought about it, it was like, oh, it was Walter. Didn't know it at the time, but he, he's, he was remarkable and did, influenced did, me. Did you know, did you realize his influence in high school and then in college or was it after no, that point? Absolutely not. I, I was probably... 10 or 15 years into teaching when I realized I'm just mimicking what he did. I mean, and I, I would think to myself, oh my goodness, this is, well, how did this happen? And he, and so I think the best part of teacher is you can have a lasting impact on the lives of people and you'd hope that it's a positive one. And Walter is here. I mean, he's not here, but he's definitely here. And if you would have seen him teach and then watched me teach, I think there were there would be very many similarities. I'm not as skilled as he. He was he he's a he was a brilliant man. Um, grew up in Russia, um, Jewish family had to escape. And he came to New York and started a dry cleaning business, made millions of dollars, and went to work at Pocono Mountain High School and they would offer him a contract and he would say, Yes, I will take one dollar. Really? Because your money doesn't matter to me, but the kids here do. And he would take a dollar contract every year. And uh, he'd hold it up. He'd say, here it is. You want to know what my salary is? It's one dollar. You know, why am I here? I'm here for you, not for a paycheck. And he was very, very, very honorable and inspirational to boatloads of kids like me, little knuckleheads who didn't know any better. <laughs> I wonder what sparked his interest in teaching after all that. You know, Walter and I didn't speak much i mean he was he was a rock star teacher right so to approach him as a seventh grader as it was hard enough yeah i mean i don't think he had buddies with you know he wasn't buddies with seventh graders he wasn't buddies with most of the faculty because i don't think they appreciated his act very much but it was it was just kind of osmosis i'm not i don't know how to explain how he influenced me, but certainly Walter Melnikoff would be my biggest teaching influence. Um, and I would also say Ron Culbertson, in a way. Ron had a, a way of knowing kids and knowing why they did what they did. He knew them better than they do themselves sometimes. I'm not that guy, but he would know. You know, uh, this kid's going to do this this week, and here's why he's going to do it, and here's why you're going to make sure that he doesn't do it, and here's how you're going to make sure so he doesn't get his feelings hurt. He knew everything. He knew them, every boy in the school. He, Ron Culbertson knew them all. There's another. He knew their families. He knew what they were. Their sports were. He knew everything. He just knew. How how do you like? What processes do you use to get to know your students on a deeper level as a you know a personal middle school teacher, what do you do to really get to know them during the year, at the beginning of the year and throughout the year? It's a tough question. It's hard sometimes 
for middle school boys to let themselves be seen, right? They're insecure. So I think my biggest asset is that I'm vulnerable with them. Um, I've been through a lot with the boys here. They know stuff about me and my family. And I think they feel like they can share with me. And that's a hard thing for teachers to do. I think it's a really hard thing for older faculty to do. And that is to just allow people to see your whole self and your faults, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not unusual that my boys will say, oh, Mr. Jones, you didn't. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we know. All right. Perfect. So they know. They know me up and down and backwards, and I mostly know them. Now, boys can be a little suspect of you. You know, if they don't trust you, you're not going to know much. At Gilman, our mission is to get to know boys, love them completely with their faults, whatever they drag along with them, is to love the whole boy and to care about their future. I see remarkable things and the future seems dim sometimes right it just looks like the world is never going to get to be better but if i have to judge by what's happening at gilman it's going to get a lot better it, it will be better than what what um we left it for sure and some of my sixth grade boys are going to be change agents and are going to they'll change things for the better i'm convinced of that yeah and i don't know if i I realize that either because I've said before that I, I just don't know if I would be interested in teaching the middle school grade level because I do lacrosse stuff with some boys Correct. and they're knuckleheads <laughs> and they have so much energy and I just don't know if I have the, the patience. But I, I went to observe one of Erica Cabrera's classes and I was just ama I was amazed at how like silent and focused they were and they were participating. They were saying some really good things. and. Right. It's a good like, thing you went to her class because mine <laughs> is chaos by comparison, but we're a little different style-wise. But yeah, middle school can be, the boys are still, they still have that charm and innocence. I told somebody today after that little meeting, I think I learned everything I need to know in life from my parents and from middle school boys. There's nothing, they are authentic, you know? If you're... Uh, I don't know. If your shoe's untied, hey, Mr. Jones, your shoe's untied, right? Yeah. If if your your eyelashes are crooked, oh, Mr. Jones, your eyelashes, whatever it is. Got something on your face. They'll you're, know, yep. and, and it's they do care. I, I adore our um, boys and families, and that's another thing. It shouldn't get left out. There's a tremendous amount of family support at Gilman. I and I'm not going to get into details because it would be too dramatic. I would be in a puddle crying. But um, I have had the distinct honor of working as partners with parents of boys through good and bad. I'm so uplifted. So I feel so supported and so cons the concern for me, right? And I just what the boy might have done or didn't do, the concern for how I'm feeling about it. I've never been in a place like this. I don't ever expect to be again. It is um, more than remarkable. And it, it's it's oftentimes, I think parents don't get enough credit. They have to, there's a lot to do for a middle school parent. 
right? They've got to monitor these boys. They've got to worry about how they're doing in school. They've got athletic stuff to worry about. They've got a boatload of teachers to respond to. But generally speaking, I mean, in my case, in almost every instance, parents have been off the charts helpful. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond what you could imagine. And it's changed my life. And then there, there are families here that will be part of my life for as long as I live. And I would have never expected that um, coming to Gilman. I just, it wouldn't have been a thought I would have had. Um, so thinking about your c- curriculum and your geography class, what are some of the things that you talk about and some of the some of the parts of your course and your curriculum that you study and you try to engage the boys with wow. that they get really excited about? You're right in my wheelhouse now, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love to talk about. So uh, there is, I think, for Americans in general, a lack of awareness about the world. Now, we could call it geography or social studies or social science or world studies or world, but however you want to name it, we call it geography. Having some knowledge about the world around you is an important thing. Having some basic concepts about economics and history, the culture of people, the arts, gives meaning to the rest of the stuff. So the boys will say, you know, I make fun of the math teachers and say, you guys get the same, what? You get the same 10 digits, a decimal point, some stuff, and you manipulate those and you think you're doing something, right? You're not doing anything. L.A. people have, no offense, 26 letters and some punctuation. Geography, you have the whole world to work with. So it's an Eastern Hemisphere-based course, and I thought coming here that would be a good thing. Um, I think the boys know enough about Kansas or Indiana or Iowa, and they can find out more if they need to. But what do they know about the deep connections between, for example, Africa and the Americas? You know, maybe not so much. So the last part of the year, we've been trying to establish those connections. Not so much the aspects of uh, slavery or, um, you know, the, the monetary aspects of it. But what, what are some key questions we could ask? And one of them was, okay, if, if this many people left Africa um, in an enslaved condition, what did it do in Africa? What was left? If you take those people out, what happens? And then they were like, well, the economy might collapse. I'm like, okay. So now you have some idea about why we, and then what happens during the period of colonialization, right? What occurs? Well, resources leave. So I said, okay, if you have people and resources leaving, what's the condition? Of, well, it's not going to be so good. So basic things such as that, we study population and demography. We have a really good unit on population growth and demography, where people are going to be. And boys can tell you that sixth grade boys in my class will be able to tell you almost verbatim about what the population of the years uh, of the world is going to be in 2050, where these people are going to be. And it, by the way, will not be in the Americas, right? We'll have a billion. There'll be 5 billion people in Asia. There'll be 4 billion Africans. There'll be maybe a billion Europeans, maybe not. So what does that pretend for the world they're going to live in? It, it, is, it is daunting to think about, but they're approaching a world and a, and a time that's never been seen before. There's, there's no record of anything like this. I mean, the, the latest data on population from the census 
you know, we had slow population growth. In some place in Europe, it's negative. And with immigration, um, border crossing, and borders not meaning much anymore in parts of Europe and around the world, it's, it's, a, it's a brave new world. We obviously spend some time talking about climate change. and Well, let me ask you sure. about the overpopulation before we talk about the next part of your course. Um, what, are the, what are the workarounds, what are the solutions sure. to the overpopulation right. crisis? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a two-way street. It's, it's growing population in certain places and diminishing population in others. That is the issue. So what, for, for example, Japan would be a great example a fiercely declining population. I think there are 126 million or so. They'll be in the 90s by 2060, and their population will be aged to the point where you may not have enough workers to pay taxes to support those people. We could, I don't think we will because of immigration, but we could end up in a similar situation where you have a stagnating economy because you don't have workers, right? And you have older people like me, (laughs) who are collecting social security and need support. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you manage that? And with birth rates, birth rates in the United States declining. So, it's a dual problem. I think the popula this is is very shocking. As populations in Asia and Africa grow, they also grow more wealthy. China has seen an enormous rise, not just in population but in wealth. India behind but certainly there's no reason why India with its educated uh, workforce and uh, social sort of structure can't be a wealthy nation. So I, I ask the boys not to see us as necessarily in competition with other countries, but what will the world look like when they get there? And it's not about overpopulation, it's about a population shift and a demographic shift that is going to challenge us to think differently about the world we're in. We will we will likely not be an alone superpower much longer. And we may not be now. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the growth of China and and how that's happened and what it means, it we're going to be in a different situation. And the boys are unaware of that and haven't thought about that, and haven't taken the time to process that. And that's pretty sophisticated stuff. For sixth grade, right? I mean, that's heavy-duty work, but the boys are all over it. They cannot sometimes stop talking about it. So, <laughs> it's uh, that's a great question, and it's it's a changing world for sure. What uh, what holds India back so much from competing with with China? Why is China skyrocketing so much, and India is just not quite there? Well, it I think it's structure. So the you would have to think, and although I can't support it, you know, a more authoritarian type government in China has just said, look, here's how it's going to be. There are, we're going to go this direction, and here's where we're going, and everybody better follow or else. India being a democracy, right, has the same sort of issues that we have. We're sometimes disorganized. Sometimes we're battling amongst factions, right? Sometimes we're not... Um, completely focused on what direction we should go. So uh, I I would suspect that the Chinese have an advantage in that there's certainly a strong direction there. Um, 
I don't support necessarily. <laughs> you know, I can't say I'm a big supporter of the Chinese Communist Party, but I wouldn't say that but at all. But I would say that it does give a certain advantage in having a firm course, a firm direction to go. I think it's in some ways helped. It's helped the Chinese to move forward. There, and the other thing is, you know, their technology base, a lot of it, um, you know, is not developed there. So if you're building electronic equipment for some other nation, you certainly know how it's built and you can certainly copy it or, you know, you can figure out how it works and make it work. So I think they have used to their advantage their capacity to make things, to find out how things are made and then be able to make them and maybe more cheaply because they have a huge labor force. Mm-hmm. So it's that's complicated stuff, but it is exactly what we talk about in sixth grade geography, no more or no less than what I'm speaking with you about now. And boys um, in general appreciate it, I think. At least I hope they do. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, it sounds like an amazing it's conversation an to have. It's per- really perfect conversation to have in a in a classroom but it's an important one for these sixth graders because what is the world going to look like when they're adults yeah different than it looks now (laughs) for sure a lot different Um, how how does how does the west compete with a structure like the communist china uh, communist party of china that's just so one directional and authoritarian correct and we're not that we're unidirectional and crazy right so and just I, gridlocked I was, and stagnant but there listen there in my opinion we remain the great nation and the principle someone said the other day you know americans are they're they're so unique in that they don't have a common language necessarily i mean english sort of right you know, there's not a common sort of religion. You know, we're all over the place. There's not a common cultural thread necessarily other than maybe, you know, I don't know, some sports that keep us together. But what we do have, all of us have in common, is a constitution, a framework, a way of thinking about how the nation can move forward as a multicultural, multi-ethnic um society and i don't think you know they this is an experiment right mm-hmm. it's not a finished product for sure not a finished product so we have to focus directly on what our issues are and how we can resolve them so I, here's what i do think um we can improve education for sure uh, gilman would be a shining example of something that doesn't need much improvement really but for a lot of public school kids, we can do better than we've done, uh, unquestionably. And I think that, if I had to name one thing, that would be, and there are 50 ways to think about it, student debt reduction would be one. Um, I think opening up a community college to more students who don't have the financial wherewithal to go to a four-year is a really good thing. Early childhood education, universal pre, those things to me are low-hanging fruit. Now they cost money, but if if it were put to me, I would say education will put us ahead and keep us ahead. And you can see it. I mean, it, um, international students come here to four-year schools for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. They they want to go to Harvard or, or Stanford or MIT or Cornell or Duke or wherever. There's a reason for that. Those places are successful. 
we, many schools are, even the big state schools are very, we move those ideas from the lab of thinking, like a college, and move them into the world. So my son attended MIT. Now, that's kudos to him, but the thing was we walked, I'd go up there and visit him, and we'd walk uh, on Main Street, I guess, in Cambridge, and there was this building that said Moderna on it. I'm like, what is what did they do? He said, I don't know, some biotech thing, Moderna, yeah. you know. And, is that and right I, on M- MIT's campus? It's right out the back door. If you go, yeah, you know, MIT and Harvard are close by, right? They're not that far apart, but in some ways they're worlds apart. I mean, it's, MIT's a little bit different kind of a place. But he, you know, I didn't know what it was. And now that I have had their vaccine, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know what it is, right? right. It was something that may help save my life. So we still have that free thinking. We're not we're not asked to conform. We're asked to think about what is a best solution, not the solution the government necessarily wants to offer. And I think that's a weakness for the Chinese government. I think they'll always be stifled by centralized control of thinking, right? We're not that. We're going to we're going to invent our way out of every kind of situation. And I think it the, the Moderna vaccine is probably a pretty good example because now we didn't start off very well, but I have boys in my class who are now getting vaccinated, right? And this is a year plus out. Who would have thought? Right. Who could have imagined? That I couldn't imagine any way out of this mask wearing and social distancing and locking down everything. Unimaginable to me. And some lab guy somewhere figured, wait a minute. I, I think I got a solution here. <laughs> so I, I do think that, that our free thinking... Um, the government trying to stay out of the way as best it can and allowing people to create um, is really a good thing and it's a powerful tool and it's how the West will win, I think, eventually. Yeah, they may may well. And when you came to Gilman, your focus was on the Eastern Hemisphere. You wanted to implement that Correct. specific uh, curriculum into the geography in the middle school. Why? Why was it, when did that idea originate? Like, why did you choose the Eastern Hemisphere specifically? Right. This this grew out of some conversations we had in Anne Arundel County developing the curriculum, because I helped write down there twice. So um, I was fortunate to work with a lot of great people, and we had really good input. So we had to talk about where the people were, right? They're not here, <laughs> You know, the Western Hemisphere is a minor player in terms of the number of people in the world. It's also more familiar to folks. So, you know, boys will know something a little bit about Canada. They'll certainly know something about the states. They may know a little bit about Central and South America, but they're not going to know too much about Mongolia or they're not going to know about the Gobi Desert. They're probably not going to have experienced much to do with large Islamic populations of the Middle East. They won't know much about Chinese culture. They're not going to know much about the history of Japan. So it's a, it's an attempt. It's a survey course. It's not, you know, it's not a focused, focused course. It's an attempt to have boys open their eyes to, to the world. And I'll, this is a funny story. This boy is going to graduate this year. I won't say his name. He was an interesting guy in middle school. And at the end of the year, he was all bright-eyed. He said, Mr. Jones. I said, what? 
I just want to thank you for opening my eyes. I said, I don't really think I did that. He said, <laughs> I love no, that. I think you did. I said, no, dude, your eyes were always open. I just ask you to turn your head in a different direction. So it's not about, it, it was a, an attempt to focus on something that, that is important, right? What's going on in the so-called Eastern Hemisphere is important. I mean, we could see it now in the Middle East situation. So boys need to be aware of the world around them. They, they'll need to know. And a lot of our boys you know, are connected. So we have families from every part of the Eastern Hemisphere at Gilman. And they should be included in the discussion and curriculum and content, I think, so it was not a hard decision. I'm really still proud of the choice we made to kind of move away from sort of U.S. history. And I would also add uh, that it's kind of a skills-based course. We do a lot of reading and writing, um, and that's a that's directly related to Brooks Matthews and Chris Downs. I'll just say it out loud. Those gentlemen who helped our, form our department and run it and operate it so well focused our attention on writing reading and research that's that's the core i do less of it in sixth grade than than it gets to be in seventh or eighth grade but by the time a boy leaves the department in eighth grade he's going to be very proficient very proficient or at least know how to be proficient in writing reading and in research we've had tremendous tremendous assistance from library with faith ward and mm-hmm. before that marion weglowski just so supportive of the research piece for our guys. We've gone across curriculum with LA and um, not so much in sixth grade, although we did do a Holocaust unit and we took a field trip. We've been doing this now. We didn't go last year because of COVID, but two years prior to that, we went to the Holocaust Museum. The boys read Anne Frank in sixth grade LA. And I taught them sort of about um, Germany and the Holocaust and geography. And then we, it was a tough trip hard to do for sixth grade boys but uh, we supported that with talk also so in the talk class we had some discussion about religion and background um, and it, it was so uplifting I mean a horrible terrible thing to discuss but the reaction of the boys and how they managed their feelings and thoughts about it and what they learned and experienced was overwhelmingly positive I think and it was great and I'm hoping that uh, the boys will get back down there next year when COVID clears a little bit I think we will the Holocaust Museum will open and we may get back there next year do you do any other field trips and go down to DC anymore <laughs> or is it was that the only one I'm sure you've done so many field trips in oh your career. my goodness career field trips you don't want to hear about them I, I mean <laughs> here's the funny story about a field trip an Anne Arundel County field trip so there you would have Instead of, I don't know, 12 or 13 or 14 boys in a class, you might have 35 or 40. So we took a whole grade of kids. In my middle school, there were roughly 1,500 students. Okay, so Vernon Park Middle School was and may still well be probably is the largest middle school in Anne Arundel County. It's one of the largest in the state. It might be the largest in the state. So we took 400 kids to New York. Oh, my gosh. 400. Uh, and then we took the year before that, we took 400 to Philadelphia to the Franklin Institute. So it's buses and parents. I had everything arranged. I worked 20 hours a you day. Were, you were the head honcho. Oh, yeah. Mr. Going to have a field trip. 
How many, how many chaperones went? How many other teachers? Uh, there must have been at least four teachers per bus, and there were 56, I think, kids on a bus, and then parents. So we get to the Franklin Institute, and I've got the envelopes, and I've got you know, everything arranged, <laughs> except I've forgotten the check back at school to pay the Franklin Institute for admission. So I have 400 kids oh waiting in line to get in, and they're like, where's your money? I'm like, oh, wait, it's, it's, it's here somewhere. No, it's not. So I had to credit card it and pay for lunches, and it turned, in, it turned out okay, but it was the most humiliating, embarrassing moment of my teaching career by far. I've never <laughs> been that humiliated in my life, and I, I, I probably part of the reason I left Anna Rundle was to get away from the flack that I <laughs> took over that. Yeah, it was oh hilarious. And our trip to New York was was sort of, and I, I won't say her last name, but there's a young lady, Faith, and her mom. We were standing, we went to the UN, and we went to the World Trade Center. And we were there in, it must have been May 2001. And we were on the top of that building. And Mrs., well, Faith's mom, I won't, can't say her name, Said, could you get a picture with Faith right here at the bill? I said, we have to get on the bus. She said, no, no, no. We'll never have this opportunity again. You should get this picture taken now. Click. And that, that was a, I mean, I lived through the Kennedy assassination, most of the civil rights movement. That was different. I think the Kennedy assassination caused us to lose our innocence. We were after that you could no longer say bad things can't happen. 9/11 confirmed it that it was an evil world and that we we needed to find ways to make it better. I don't know that we took the right path to try to make it better necessarily. But it I'll never forget that picture with that child. I don't know where the picture is. I don't. I don't think I have a copy of it. Um, those kids at 9/11. I was in my classroom and and heard the news and was not really too surprised. Um, people were shocked. I was like, mm, that's not shocking. And I have some ideas about what the roots of this are um, because I had studied and read. You know, it was there had been a, an attempt, an earlier attempt on the World Trade Center where someone attempted to bomb it and kind of put a big plume of smoke in the building. And I remember pictures of like elementary school kids on the top of that building where I was standing. So this was not surprising at all to me. I didn't think for a minute it was accidental. So mm -hmm. um, I've had some interesting field trips. <laughs> uh, I won't get into all the details, but those are two that were memorable. Uh, the lost check and then sort of the preview of 9-11, which was... Man, Man that's terrible. And uh, you've had some trips on your own to the Eastern Hemisphere, right? You've been to uh, some. Have you been over there or no? I, I haven't. I haven't. I'm not. So this is going to be a strange thing for a geographer. I'm not an easy traveler. No. No, I do not have a traveler's digestive system. <laughs> I don't have a traveler's will. You know, I don't have a traveler's love of air flights. I'm very hesitant about any of that. So. We are fortunate at Gilman to be able to apply for grants. And I, frankly, as a teacher, most of this stuff I would not have been able to afford, just to be honest. I just couldn't. There would be no way I could pay for plane tickets, and I just couldn't do it. 
when I got here, I was very surprised that the school would help with that if it applied to what you were trying to do in the classroom. They were certainly willing to. So I, I did have an opportunity. I'll, I'll tell you quickly about this. We ended up, this is going to sound strange. So the, on my wall in my classroom are clocks. And the kids will often ask me, well, what time is it? You have five clocks? I mean, why do you have five clocks? What time is it? It depends on where you are. What is that supposed to mean? I said, well, you'll soon figure it out. Time is related to earth rotation. An, an, a rotating earth and a clock operating on the same system, right? Clocks are nothing more than a model of a spinning earth. Oh, oh, oh. Well, well how they figure that? And so we went into um, the derivation of how people could find longitude. There's a, a Dava Sobel wrote a beautiful book called The Story of Longitude. Everybody ought to read it, right? Latitude was pretty easy to determine, but longitude's tough. Mm-hmm. You had to know the time in two places. You got to know time in two places, 24 hours in a day, 360 degrees uh, in a circle, and that's 15 hours of Earth, 15 degrees of Earth rotation per hour. You need to know that, right? There's 15 degrees of, so the kids kind of get that part, the 15 degrees of Earth rotation. So if you have two places, you know what time it is, you can count the number of hours, you can count the number of degrees, that's going to give you your longitude. They're like, that's brilliant how they figure that out. And it, it really gets back all the way back to, we do this in class, all the way back to Galileo and the invention of the telescope and the moons of Jupiter, right? The moons of Jupiter are what determined uh, uh, the, the ability to derive longitude and the Paris Observatory is where it took place Um, and it was Galileo and some scientists at the at the observatory Jean Dominique Cassini who was was uh, Jean Giovanni Dominico whatever he was in Italian but the French paid him off to become right to become French and work at their little, little observatory and he watched the moons of Jupiter and came up with a clock it was called the clock in the sky. And anytime you had his tables, once they had them printed, and you could see the moons of Jupiter, you could know the time in Paris, even <laughs> if you weren't there. There's no clock, swinging clock. It's fascinating. So I had a chance. It's the greatest thing I ever did in terms of travel was to go to the Paris Observatory and to stand there and imagine in 1600 and whatever it was, 54, I think, that people then knew how to find latitude and longitude. They could, and for sailing and commerce, it was critically important. So we got a chance to go there. We, we went to London, and then we went to a place that scared the living daylights out of me. We went to Iceland, which is likely to blow up at any second, right? This is a volcano city. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was fascinating. So, yes, I've traveled to the Eastern Hemisphere. I haven't been to Africa. I don't know that I'll get there. I'm, I'm hoping to. Where, I, where would you want to go in Africa? Where would I want to go? Uh, let's see. I would probably, that's a great question. Uh, I'm just going to be honest, right? I'm not going to try to make up something here. I think I'd like to go to Cairo for a while and maybe South Africa. I know some families here have done that. I, I don't really have a huge interest in a safari and seeing animals and taking people. That's not. Mm-hmm. Culturally, I think it would be 
an interesting thing. And I've had students, one who, um, <laughs> another story, I can't tell you the whole thing, but she, she went to Africa after high school. And I asked her when she got back, when she was coming back, she said, never. I think, what do you mean never? You have family here. Yeah, I have family there. What do you mean you're never coming back? I, this is not, my home is there. And she was there a year and decided never to come back. Where'd she go? I think she was in Mali. Yeah, but she she adopted, a family adopted her. You can't, uh, it, okay, here we go. Story time, right? <laughs> That's what you're known for, uh, storyteller. Story time. So we had, my wife and I were members of the International Visitor Center. And you had to have people come over to your house, but you couldn't take them out for dinner. You just had to let them see how Americans live. So we had this gentleman from Botswana. And I picked him up at a hotel downtown. I think it was the Sheraton, not far from the ballpark. And I, I won't say his name, but it won't matter. So we're driving, and he said, you know, I can smell water. Where, is there water here? I said, well, we're not far from the inner harbor. Yeah, there's, there's water. May, may we see this water? And we can drive by there. So we, we drive by, and he sees it. He goes, now, that is beautiful water for drinking. I said, that's not water for drinking. <laughs> what is it? That's water that you cannot drink. I said, that's right. You can't drink that water. Okay. But it looks like you can, no, you cannot drink that water. So he was confused about why you would have all this water, but in America, in a place where you, should have, you couldn't drink it. Hmm. So we're driving up Charles Street, and there were some homeless people there, and, it, and they had some blankets. It might have been a little chilly, like blankets piled on. And he asked me if that man was a blanket salesman. I said, no, I, I don't think he's, he's selling blankets. I think he may be homeless. What is homeless? I said, well, it's a person who doesn't have a home to live in. So you mean to tell me in America you have people who can't, they don't have, I said, yes, that is correct. And I think we may have been on Calvert, and on the left-hand side there were some boarded-up row houses. They're torn down now, and it's just a vacant lot. But I don't remember the block, maybe 2,700 block of Calvert. And the houses were boarded up and the doors were boarded up. And he said, now, why don't those houses have windows? Why, why are there no windows? Why, is they, why did they put the board over? I said, those are vacant houses. And he said, so uh, you tell me about America. You mean to tell me you have homeless people sleeping in front of vacant houses? I said, yes. He said, America makes no sense. He said, in Africa, you could never be homeless. Not ever. There's no such thing. Somebody will, if you don't have a home, someone will give you a place to sleep. That's what he said. It's not, home, homelessness is not an optional, you, that, he said he was confounded by it, mm -hmm. completely confused. And it, an observer's eye, that's what I hope when the boys do travel, they'll develop, they'll have some, I hope we've given them some sort of foundation or background, but to observe how cultures are different and see how we can get better is really an important thing. And there are ways we can get better. And who knows what the homeless population is now. It seems greater, right? But yeah. in Africa, that's not a thing. You can't be homeless, right? And so my student adopted a family, and she I don't know that she ever came back. And that would have been 25 or 30 years wow. ago. Yeah. So Cairo is... Is where you would go. I would go to Cairo. Yeah. Yeah. Any any reason why? why it just that? to me it would be to view the Nile. Um, to my mother went there bef before she passed away, um, kind of like a church 
group thing. United Methodists go to Cairo, right? So my mom said to me that, you know, before she died, she wanted to walk where Jesus walked. So she did that, and they ended up in Cairo. And she called me from the hotel. I don't think there were cell phones then. She said it was the most amazing thing. I said, what happened, Mom? She said the, there were prayers, and everybody, the whole, it seemed like the whole world stopped, and everybody prayed. And I said, well, what was that like? She said, it forced me to want to stop and pray too. So it, I, there's a certain, I think, overwhelming, that many people in one place going one direction, praying together yeah. is, is intriguing to me. Uh, it's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Quaker, so <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know that I would pray in the same way, but. Just the, the spectacle of that. Yeah, I, I would like to see that. And yeah. I would like to see the Nile. And I, I would like to spend some time maybe looking at artifacts and museums. I, I think I would, if any place in Africa, Cairo for sure would be the first stop. And maybe someday I'll get to do that. Anywhere else that you would want to go just on a grander scale? Oh, absolutely. The grandest scale. Here's yeah. my grand scale. What's your I, top top travel destination? Top travel destinations are easy. Those are easy things. I love to travel in the United States. So I would go back to San Diego in a heartbeat. I'm going to San Diego. You'll it, it's, couple weeks. It's, you'll you can love it. Go Padres. Go Manny Machado. <laughs> You've been there before. I have been to San Diego. I've not been to the ballpark for a game. Yeah, but uh, I, I, this was the maybe the most interesting trip. I had a boy. In my class, we were studying borders and boundaries and whether or not they were real or imagined. A long discussion about whether these things mattered or they didn't matter or whether they were just some figment of somebody's imagination or were they real. And this boy said, well, Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, if you get, you go to California and you're walking on the beach and you get close to Mexico, can you just like wade into Mexico? I'm like, mm, I don't know. He's, what do you mean you don't know? I'm like... I don't know. What's the name of that place? I'm like, I still don't know. And it bothered me. I mean, it kid. I mean, I was hoping to have an answer. No clue. I had no idea. So I Google earthed it or something. And there's, there is a place it's called border field state park. And in 2010, Gilman granted me enough money along with some of my, <laughs> some of my money. And my wife and I, and my son went to border field state park. We walked, about two or three miles down to the beach and we walked to Mexico. And there is, I actually did a blog that year, one of the early ed bloggers, right? I mean, this was 2010. So there's video. I sometimes still share it with the, the boys of me going down the beach and ending up in Mexico so that I could really answer this boy's question about what is there. And I love that. It's You should see, and what is there is amazing. It is amazing. It is past amazing. It's changed now. But when we got there, there were probably some poles like the size of telephone poles, a little taller, spaced maybe a foot apart, and they went out maybe 30 yards in the water, and that was it. I mean, we talked to people in Mexico. I was as close to people in Mexico as I am with you now. I mean, three feet, four feet. Mm -hmm. Right? Just right there. And there was no fence, no barricade, no anything. There's a little park on the hill down there called, uh, I think it's called Friendship Park or the Friendship Memorial. And there used to be no anything there. 
So people from Mexico and San Diego would just walk back and forth. There was no demarcation. There was no, there, there's no, still no, they're border patrol agents, but there's no crossing there. So there's nothing there really other than beach, the most beautiful view of the Pacific you would see. And then on our side, no one. We walked in and saw one person go in and out on horseback and on the side of Mexico, it looked like Ocean City during the summertime. Wow. Um, a throng of people, our side, nobody. Hmm. And the video's available, I think, if you go to, <laughs> let me think if I remember, this is in 2010, uh, California Geo 101 is what it's called. Hey, you'll see it. It's the look for the hike on Borderfield mm-hmm. State Park. It's actually how far from San Diego is this? Yeah, you shouldn't. People say you shouldn't go down there. They told us not to, right? Because it's not. There are Border Patrol agents there, but it's not a guarded or protected place. And every once in a while, somebody will hop the fence or try to hop the border and come this way. It didn't feel. It, it didn't feel insecure, but it probably might have been a little insecure. I'd say it's maybe 10 miles out of town. It's down past National City, down past the uh, military base, name I've forgotten. But it's an easy thing to find, and it's fascinating. It is. There's the Tijuana Estuary. There's a river that flows out of, now you've got me talking geography, right? There's a (laughs) river that flows out of Mexico that's pretty polluted, actually, and flows into that area. So it's not a place where you could... You know, don't take your shoes off is probably what I would say. But if you go out to the beach, typically on our side, there is not a single person. No one. There's a Pacific Ocean and you. And then the Mexican side, a whole bunch of folks. And we talk to them. And there's a bull ring, like a bullfighting ring on the other side. You can Google Earth it. It's worth it's worth a look. I, I wouldn't expect... Um geography teacher who concentrates on the eastern hemisphere to, to choose San Diego right. and the border with Mexico as was, the right. destination. Here was the thing. So it's, there's some theory involved in the course. So do borders and boundaries mean anything? And it could be any border and boundary. When I was trying to study deserts, I didn't, you know, it was like too expensive to go to Africa and really take a Saharan safari thing. Mm-hmm. So we went to the western United States. I went to... Um, all kinds of places. I mean, I ended up in San Diego. Then we ended up in the at the Salton Sea. We went to Joshua Tree. We went all the way up the Owens Valley. If you want to take a ride, if you just want to do something, the Owens Valley on 395 between down by L.A. and Bakersfield all the way up to the back end of Yosemite is the ride of a lifetime. It is it is California unseen. It's not the coastal California. It's the Valley of California, dry as a bone, breezy as the daylights, and stuff you just would never see anywhere else. There are, there's Bodie, California, which is a national park now, which is an official ghost town. You can go over to Death Valley. We did not do that. You can take the, um, don't ever do this. <laughs> don't ever do this. The Tioga Pass Road, which goes from Mono Lake, California, and it goes across this mountain and comes down in Yosemite. And I asked people what the ride was. Oh, it's breathtaking. Oh, it's beautiful. It's breathtaking. I'm like, all right, well, that sounds good. And I got up there on the side of that mountain, and my breath was certainly taken. <laughs> I couldn't breathe. It was horrifying. I mean, it's it's the highest pass road, in, I think, in California, maybe one of the highest pass roads in the United States, but it's like ten or 11,000 feet and you're hanging off the side of this cliff, and there's mountain above you, 
sky high and, and rocks <laughs> rocks falling down and it's just it's complete wilderness boys don't understand that so if i would supplement an easy trip for a hard trip and that because of my travel problems and because of the cost i could i could kind of mock up here mm-hmm. what you might see if you were in africa or what you might see on any desert anywhere so it was um it was big fun Cesare, we might have to load up the uh, the RV and get out there this summer. <laughs> you check it out. It's it's you. If that Tioga Pass road, try to stay off of that thing. And it's we've done that. It it was remarkable. Then we went to uh, of course San Francisco. So the boys study difference between wilderness, urban areas, and suburban areas. So we're trying to do that. And I went all the way across the bridge to. There's a little stand of uh, the remaining redwoods, the John Muir Wood, which is just north of the bridge, worth visiting. Um, it was just a remarkable trip. And like I said, fortunately, it was work, and it was all documented, and I could use it with my boys. And thanks to Gilman, I was able to do it because I probably wouldn't have otherwise. Have you been up to the um, Pacific Northwest at all? <laughs> yeah. That was the last granted trip we got. We went for a reason. So we, I wanted to, to, um, to kind of explore, we studied or had, we kind of shifted off of this, but we had some work on volcanoes and earthquakes. And I was like, man, the best place, where's the best place to see a volcano? Mount St. Helens, right? And that thing, I mean, I was a teaching guy when that thing blew up and it just mesmerized me for a while. And the kids don't realize it now, but ash from that thing fell on Maryland, right? Cars got gritty. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, my it was It was a huge deal. Wow. A huge deal. So um, we went there for that purpose. We spent some time in Seattle. Um, I got to see a lot of um, old-growth forests. We went into um, Canada, took a ferry and went across into Vancouver, B.C., and did some museum work there. And Vancouver then, looks amazing. It is. Okay, here we go. So what's the story? Why would you go to Vancouver? I wanted to study Chinese immigration. If you want to study Chinese immigration in the, in the United States, you can, but it's best studied if you go to Vancouver. The wealth generated in China is spilling over and causing housing prices in Seattle and Vancouver to be way past what they might be even in Manhattan in some instances. This, it is, it is this, it's a wonderful story of how you can't put up a boundary or a border and stop people from being where they want to be. And Vancouver is particularly beautiful, particularly expensive, and the influence of Asian culture there is as great as anywhere I've been. And there was there's there was Japanese immigration to Vancouver, but now primarily a large influx of Chinese influence there. And the money is just dripping. I have never seen more Maseratis, Ferraris, Lambos just zinging around like it's nothing. Hmm. Like it's a Prius, man. I mean, they just were and fascinating. Fascinating place. One one glass condo on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. Never-ending source of money, primarily generated not here but elsewhere. 
Yeah, I've seen pictures of it, and my sister is in the military, and she's getting stationed out at Fort Lewis. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> uh, and she's gonna be in Tacoma this summer, so I'm gonna go out there a little bit and check out these spots. It's kind of the beauty of the podcast is I can go back and listen sure. to some of your recommendations here. Well, there are places in Seattle. It's uh, you should go to the Locks if you get to Seattle. You should go visit. Now that I want to do a commercial for Amazon, my goodness, but the Amazon headquarters is a really interesting place. And um, the Boeing plant north of Seattle was a fascinating thing. If you want, it's the world's largest indoor structure. The, oh, really? Yeah, Disneyland will fit inside this building, including the parking. Wow. Not Disney World, but Disneyland will fit in this building. Hmm. It's crazy. So you can watch them make airplanes. So. So let's get. I could talk to you all day. I'm, 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 in, I'm really enjoying this. But uh, if we can get to your book, oh. what, what, what is your book rack for oh, the podcast? Well, I have many book racks, and this one is special to me. And I'm not necessarily recommending it, but there's a purpose in my bringing it. Uh, this book was written, I think, in the 70s or 80s, and I'll give you the story behind the book. I had this young boy in my first year of teaching who was just wild, you know, tall and wild and his mom said you know he dad's not at home and could you just be some guidance for this kid and I tried and it was really hard but he was in my first class in 1973 had some talent and he said uh you know I'm gonna write a book I said well okay no you don't I'm gonna write a book I said well start writing your pencil and paper right there and you just go (laughs) ahead and write you don't believe me I said well it's not that I don't believe you Brent, it's that you you haven't started yet. You can't finish anything till you start. So why don't you start writing the book and maybe someday you'll finish it. Well, you you just don't have any confidence. I knew he if you told him no, he was going to, you know, he, that's the kid he was. So, um, you know, he went to the University of Maryland. Um, he's my best friend now. He's still my best friend, right? And he was my student in 1973 when he was 15. And here's his book, Company Man. No way. That he wrote. And he didn't tell me anything (laughs) about it, right? He said nothing about the book after, you know, he said, I'm working on it. And then I think it was, I don't know when it was, I see him on Good Morning America. And, you know, we have a new author here, Brent Wade, with his new book, Company Man, New York Times bestsellers list. When did it come out? Uh, Gee, I don't even know. I probably have to check it. Uh, Don't know. Uh, let's see, published 92 by Workman Press. Yeah, but this guy was my student, and it it goes back to kind of why I started teaching middle school kids. It's because they have so much spirit. They have whatever. I mean, I wouldn't make it a religious thing necessarily, but whatever God puts in people, you know, Middle school is the time when it starts to blossom and flower, and they can do stuff. And he is an incredible guy. And I and I would like I said I could recommend it. It's not the greatest piece of literature ever written. No offense to my friend Brent, but it's the story of an African American man who's kind of trapped in a political situation with some other people in a corporate setting. It's it's in, set in Baltimore, actually. There's some Roland Park references in this book. I mean, it's worth it probably for that alone. But um, 
I brought it today because it, it, you know he's one of my favorite people and he's, he's my fa- one of my favorite students of all time and he's my best friend now and that's the book that's had the most influence on me because I might have had something to do with him actually starting to write it maybe that's pretty cool yeah Company Man by Brent Wade it's probably still on Amazon he's got he, he has some maybe some other ones coming I'm, I'm not so sure I'm reading part of one of his uh manuscripts now for something he's working on but it's been great i would also recommend um thomas peckety a french guy wrote a book called capital which is 700 pages that you have to slog through is worth every second with it 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 underscores the importance of inequality in society economic inequality particularly and what the cost of that is for everybody i i found that fascinating and there's another book that's really old school. I'm going to try to remember the author's name. I think it's Jonathan Coleman wrote a book called Exit the Rainmaker. Definitely worth reading. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a novel. It's, it's kind of a real story about a guy on the eastern shore who was a college professor. No, he was president of a college down at like Washington, maybe Washington College. I'm not sure. But he was president of his college and he had a family and he had friends and had a dog and a car and a giant, you know, well-known on boards in the community. And he, he wrote a note to some friend of his. They were in a community play together. He wrote this note that said, exit the rainmaker. And he disappeared. He took no money. Mm-hmm. He didn't take his dog. He didn't tell his wife. He didn't tell his kids. They didn't say where he was going. Just left a note. He walked out of his life. Mm-hmm. And so... I was fascinated by how we're connected to things and other people and what it would really take to want to do that, to just give it up and go. Um, And he left and he didn't leave much evidence and he didn't say anything to anybody except what was in the note, which was the title of the book called Exit the Rainmaker. Don't read it at night. It's a little spooky. <laughs> is it fiction or is it a true story? No, it's a true story. True story. Yeah. Um, and I, the, I'm forgetting the man's name who has written about Mr. Carney. Or, uh, he, he's a Marylander. And he was well known. I mean, it would have been, it would have been like, um, I don't know, who's a prominent person in Maryland? It would have been like Governor Larry Hogan uh, disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> exit, exit, Larry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that he. No, I don't want to speak about the governor that way. But, <laughs> but certainly, I mean, maybe he's too prominent. But a, a prominent person in the community who just decided there was no foul play. There was no, and he, there's no trace of there where was he no. Did. There was there were they tried to trace him, but they had trouble. And he he went out west and changed his name and hid essentially. I think some crazy like Dateline NBC or some show finally found him in the Philippines. He had another family, and he opened the door and said, "Yeah, I'm that guy," and closed the door and said, "Go away." Wow! And then he did it again. He had he he led serial lives. Apparently, hmm. it's not it's not in the book, but his first getaway is, and it's it's. I was riveted by the idea. It's not great writing, but the story. It's almost like um, what is it? Into the wild, kind yeah, of a little bit, similar yeah. story. He just yeah. goes up to Alaska <laughs> and says, "I'm out of here. Right. I want an adventure." Yeah. Well, this was, I, I, I'm, I'm still fascinated by the motivation to do something like that. My family, my friends, my Gilman experience means so much to me. I couldn't, the thought 
somebody having the idea that you could walk away from your life, you just go mm-hmm. and and just leave everything, every relationship, leave your desk the way it was, leave your, you know, if there were computers, a laptop, then leave your laptop on your desk, don't answer any meat, just gone. I'm like, whoa, yeah, that's a crazy thing. So I enjoyed that one, plus Thomas Peckety, plus Brent Wade, and a little bit if I get a chance. I love the plays of August Wilson. I, I have read those and seen those. I think it's brilliant work. And I admire Tennessee Williams. And past that, I'm now a periodical reader and a newspaper guy. So, yeah, that's my book. Awesome. Well, Andre, um, I know Gilman is going to miss you a lot next year. And, and it was incredible getting you on the podcast. I Thanks look for forward to me. some more conversations like this. I, yeah, listen, Gilman's not going to miss me much. Here is why. Ron, Ron Culbertson told me this. He said, you're going to come here and you're going to think you can be some big shot and you're going to change Gilman. He said, the only thing that's going to happen is that Gilman is going to change you for the better. That's all that's going to happen. And so uh, uh, there, there are so many wonderful people here. Gilman is going to be just fine. <laughs> Whether I'm on campus every day or not, it'll be just fine. So missing, yes, but don't worry about Gilman. It's it's going to keep chugging. But you've made such an impact, and I think you're you're one of the most requested podcast guests that I've had just from my conversations with people. They're like, you got to get Andre right. Jones on there. And so, now, so after this, <laughs> you'll never hear that again. Right? Like, why did you do that? They're going to be looking for the sequel. They're going to be looking for round two. <laughs> oh, let's hope not. Well, Andre, thanks so much for coming thanks, on Jake. and I stay in touch. It. I really do appreciate it. Thanks to everybody at Gilman and the community for what they've done for me and my family. It's been a blessing. Thank you. Thank you.